You're listening to the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute's Natural Podcast, a podcast about natural products and the science and scientists of secondary metabolism. Hey there, and welcome back for episode eight of Natural Podcast. This week, we have our conversation with Professor Eric Schmidt from the University of Utah. Uh, I've known Eric for a long time. Uh, we worked together on aflatoxin biosynthesis while he was a postdoc in Craig Townsend's lab at Johns Hopkins, where I was a graduate student. Um, aflatoxin, of course, is a fungal natural product, which is a liver toxin when humans accidentally eat it. Uh, but it has a really fun and interesting biosynthetic pathway, and I'll have to do a whole show on it one of these days. If you listen to the Nancy Keller interview, I think you'll have heard how a lot of us who work in fungal natural products, especially in the old days, saw how hard it was. Felt kind of like training for a marathon by running at high altitude. And a lot of us moved on to work in simpler systems like bacteria, where we figured we could make more progress faster, which is sometimes true. Other people, like Eric Schmidt, love a challenge and love the idea of working on harder organisms with the kinds of challenges that usually lead to surprises and really great discoveries. And Eric's done an awesome job in that respect. One of the natural product families we talk a lot about in this interview are the RIPS, or R-I-P-P-S, uh, which stands for Ribosomally Synthesized and Post-Translationally Modified Peptides. You'll have to use your imagination a little bit to really make that make sense as an acronym, but there you go. A tiny bit of background on this. Most of the machinery in any living organism are proteins, which are made up of chains of amino acids. Um, peptide is just another word for a small protein. And it turns out that a lot of natural products are built up from amino acids, so they're secondary metabolite peptides. And there are two ways that nature does this. The more well-known secondary metabolism systems are the non-ribosomal peptide synthetases, or NRPSs. You've probably heard me mention those once or twice. Um, These are enzyme systems that grab amino acids and stick them together to make small peptides. Those are fun because the host organism can use whatever amino acids it has access to, which can be really weird and different, Uh, and it makes for lots of variety in the chemistry. The other way, the RIP way, is to make a protein using the normal cellular way of making proteins with a ribosome. Then, some other enzymes chop the protein into smaller pieces, and other enzymes might make other kinds of chemical modifications to it. Eric has done a lot of work on this RIP process, and it turns out it's pretty engineerable. You can change the protein to some extent and end up with a different peptide, which might lead you to changes in bioactivity and new uses for these peptides in medicine or materials science or really anything that you can use peptides for. That's what his collaboration with JGI is all about, and we talk about it a bit here. I have like a million more questions for him, but we were a little pressed for time on this interview, so I'm hoping we can follow up with him again as the project progresses. If you're interested in RIPs, I'll put some more info in the show notes, which you can find along with the transcript at naturalproducts.com. We also talked about Eric's mentor, the, the late, great John Faulkner, and Eric told us a story about how John made Eric cut his hair because it was too long. Well, when we went looking for a photo of John, we found one from the 70s in the Scripps library, and in it, he's got shoulder-length hippie hair. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. All right, so here is our conversation with my good friend Eric Schmidt. Enjoy. Allison, we're, we're at Simbi still, so we're, we're, we're talking to more awesome people. And uh, you made the comment yesterday that um, some of the speakers we, we have spoken to I had a very personal connection to. And uh, we have one more speaker today who I have a very personal connection to. Uh, so uh, our, our, our target today is Eric Schmidt, <laughs> who's a professor at the University of Utah. And uh, Eric, uh, I first met in the Townsend lab where I did my PhD. 
Eric was a postdoc. And Eric and I worked on the aflatoxin project together, which we already talked a little bit about aflatoxin uh, in some other talks. But um, yeah, Eric taught me an awful lot about chemistry and uh, he has been uh, a good friend in my life. And so it's, I'm very happy to be here and, and have Eric sitting in the chair and, and talking to us today. How, how's it going, Eric? Good. It's an honor to be targeted by you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure where to start with you because, uh, I don't know, we've known each other a long time and I tend to like to ask people, how did they get started? How did you get started, Eric, in natural products? What, what brought you to the Townsend Lab? Uh, well, I'd like to think that everything is really rationally planned, but as usual, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, chance in life. Um, and so uh, if I go back and I look at my... Um, seventh grade list of goals in life. On that list uh, are being a marine biologist and being a chemist. And it's actually quite hard to put those two things together. Um, and natural products is one of those fields in, that you can do it. So it seems like a rational story that I've planned this for a long time. But in reality, by chance, I happened to stumble as an undergraduate on uh, the amazing uh, uh, John Faulkner's work, who passed away about uh, 17 years ago now. Um, it looked really interesting. He was interested to know how animals in the ocean use chemistry to interact, and it went from there. I want to hear more about that story. Okay. Um, Just a little bit. So which part do you want to do you want to know do you, about? What, what animals? So he uh, was really a specialist on sponges, um, and he's worked on lots of different creatures. Um, and you can find sponges everywhere in the ocean, and most people think of them as being bath sponges or something. But they're sitting there undefended, and so many of them are loaded with chemicals that, that they make that are very potent in preventing uh, predators from eating them. And so um, there's a long history. There's, I think, 60 years of history now of people looking at sponge chemistry and looking for active compounds in pharmaceuticals. Mm, okay, and he was looking at how the sponges talk to each other? Um, he was looking at interactions between sponges and other organisms. So one of mm. my favorite things that he worked on was he worked on how um, very beautiful sea slugs that eat sponges uh, concentrate those toxic compounds and then are defended further from being eaten by fish. And so that's one of the things that he looked at. Um, that it's easy to fall in love with because the creatures are very charismatic and they're very beautiful. It's something that I'd noticed as a kid just being out in the ocean. You can see these beautiful nudibranchs, these sea slugs, and mm -hmm. finding out that there's a chemical story, um, a natural product, a secondary metabolism story, um, was really interesting. So uh, lots of uh, reasons that I was attracted to work in that environment. Um, yeah, so that was here in San Diego. So... Um, yeah, so I, I did feel very lucky. Um, John uh, was a bit of a caustic person, um, which was, I loved, and one of the things I liked about him. <laughs> but one of the things he made me do is I had um, long hair as an undergraduate student, and he told me if I wanted to get into his group that I would have to cut it, and so I came in the next day with it shaved <laughs> off. Dedication, so. <laughs> yeah, we. I think... Uh, any, anybody who's been uh, uh, around Scripps has, has heard some John Faulkner stories. Yeah, sure. he was a character. He was um, known for being very tough, which he was, but um, 
you know, it was always, in my experience anyway, it was always aimed in the interest of science. Um, so it was, overall, it was good. Yeah, and I, I, I think we, uh, I think you brought some of that culture to, uh, to the Townsend Lab, too, when you got there, eh? Um, I, I don't think so. I think that that uh, <laughs> Townsend Lab culture uh, had a lot of its own um, toughness to it in various different ways. So um, the director of the lab, Craig Townsend, was very tough, and a number of people who went on to do amazing things, um, like I don't want to name names because there are too many, but um, they could also be quite strong characters. So um, I, I think that it was a strong environment overall. Yeah, tough but good science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. so there, there was nothing unfair or cruel about it, just a tough environment, I would say. Yeah. What do you see as the overall theme of your research? I, I know you've, you've generally worked in uh, various marine organisms, uh, excepting the time that we worked in, in fungi. But um, w- what do you see as, as the, the overall theme of, of, of your research, James? Uh, my theme changes, but currently my research theme really focuses on uh, animals. I think animal biochemistry is something that's really rich and underappreciated. Um, and we've worked both with the microbiome, so with symbiotic bacteria that live in animals and with animal metabolism itself. And uh, it's really amazing what diversity there is in animals. I think even despite the long history of research, they're pretty understudied in comparison to organisms such as bacteria, which chemists um, love to work with. And when you're talking about animals, you know, I picture, because I went to the zoo recently, I picture like zebras and lions and tigers, but I I feel like you're probably not limited to those. Right. So um, the the zebras and the tigers and the charismatic big animals, they actually do have interesting chemistry, but it's not an area that we work on. Um, We've worked... um, almost exclusively with animals that live in the ocean. And of those, we've worked with the invertebrates, which are the animals that are lacking backbones. And Mm -hmm. so that's our specialty. That's where most diversity of of life on Earth is located. Have you been continuing the research in sponges and nudibranchs? We, uh, so in my lab, I decided to focus on uh, tunicates, which not a lot of people know who are not specialists, but they're also called unfairly sea squirts because if you kill them and squeeze them, then they squ- you can use them to squirt your friends. Um, but they're actually beautiful. And, sorry about that. They're actually beautiful and diverse organisms, um, and they also have a rich chemistry. And so we've worked on those for a long time. We've worked with a lot of mollusks. Um, and more recently, we've come back to some of the old nudibranch problems. Um, so after the, so in addition to the tunicates, we've been working with, the, with a lot of mollusks. And sea slugs, most of them are mollusks. And we, so we've had a chance in the last couple of years to go back to the sea slugs. Um, and we do have a few um, projects on sponges. It's an area, um, there's some good groups around the world that focus on sponges, and so I feel like, um, for the most part, that area is taken care of. We haven't had uh, anybody talk too much about, about sponges, but sponges have been a big part of natural products for a while. Can you, can you to somebody who doesn't really know about sponges, can you maybe explain uh, what's going on with their biology and, and why they're so important to natural products? Sure, so sponges are one of the most common animals in the ocean. They're really uh, species diverse. Um, I lost track, actually, of the number, 
let's say the last time I checked, it was on the order of 10,000 species. Um, and whenever you're talking about a new species with natural products, a different species, you're talking about new chemistry. So there's really a lot of different chemistry in the sponges. Um, sponges basically are kind of uninteresting from the layman's perspective, I would say. They sit there on the reef or in whatever habitat they're in. They're not doing anything. They don't move. But if you really look closely um, and focus on what they're doing, they're, they're responsible for filtering out a lot of the bacteria in their environment and eating them. They're filter feeders that have a really important role on the reef and other environments. Um, and you can find them everywhere. They're at the base of the animal kingdom um, in terms of evolution. Because they're sitting there, they tend to have a lot of chemistry in them. And uh, so far, people looking at that chemistry have focused on how their microbiome, how bacteria living with the sponges contributes to chemistry. But there are also many other stories uh, waiting uh, for good scientists to uncover. So you've also done a lot of work on cone snails. I've seen you give uh a few talks on that. Can you tell us why, why cone snails are so cool? So cone snails um, are shells, basically shelled mollusks that kill and eat fish, which is kind of amazing to think about. Something that can, a, a little shell that will stab and consume a whole moving fish. And they don't eat just fish, they eat a variety of things, all of which they have to hunt down. And to do that, they harpoon them and they inject a toxic cocktail into their prey. Um, most of those uh, toxins are kind of like uh, venoms, like thinking about peptide venoms, like what a rattlesnake might inject or what a bee might inject. Um, and those have been looked at extensively. Um, one of them is a drug that's used to treat pain. Um, it's one of the only um, new, really new pain drugs to come out in the last couple of decades and uh, mechanistically new, I should say. And there's a lot of other stuff that's in there. So what we focused on is, are there other things beyond these peptide venoms that might be interesting? And what we found is there are a lot of um, small molecules that are active that are also found in the venoms, and so we've been working on that. But why small molecules matter is because this pain drug, this peptide, that's used, it's very effective, but in order to use it, it's gotta be surgically placed into your spine, into your (laughs) (laughs) intrathecally, and um, then you tune up the dose. And so it's not something, if if you're hurting, you can just take a pill, right? But with a small molecule, potentially, you can do that. Um, And so we were really lucky in our university, we have Toto Oliveira, who's a renowned neuroscientist and an expert on cone snails. And um, so he was my introduction, and I've been working with him for the last 10 years on this area. Just a clarifying question, like small molecule versus peptide, Mm -hmm. it's the small molecule you're thinking of is not not a peptide? Uh, So what we've been looking at is non-peptides, so very uh, small molecules um, that have a chance of turning into a pill that could be absorbed orally through um, through that mechanism instead of having to be um, injected, which most of the peptide drugs do have to be injected still. I see, because peptides get digested? They get digested, and they have yeah. all kinds of unfavorable properties, although saying that is a little bit unfair because there's probably thousands of groups working on solving that problem in one way or another mm. currently. But as of now... 
it's still a hard problem that's not solved. So we're focusing on the other the other avenue. So uh, speaking of peptides, you were not the first, but you were the first person that I personally knew who got really interested in ribosomally processed peptides. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know we don't need to get too too deep into the chemistry, but let's talk about that compound class a little bit and why mm-hmm. why they're so they're so fun. Yeah. All right. So um, the ribosomal peptide natural products, um, as as they're called now. Um, this is a class that is absolutely found everywhere in all forms of life. Yeah. And they take uh, these peptides uh, that I just talk- talked about as far as not being available, having to be injected, and they make lots of chemical modifications that change their properties. Um, and so a lot of groups are working on this area, on the ribosomal peptides, um, types of things you can do um, by changing these properties. You can make compounds that are better antibiotics, for example, that are more stable to absorption, for example, and, and distribution and so on. Uh, so there's a lot of reason to look at those ribosomal peptides. Um, so when I started doing this, they weren't really known to be a class. There were right, right. really good chemists and biochemists and biologists already working on various subclasses, but they weren't grouped together. And so the literature was very uh, hard to piece together. It was in pieces. And so um, one of the things that's really advanced us over the last few years is is everyone in the field has come together in an unusually friendly and cohesive way and defined um, the pieces that go together have related all of these different types of ribosomal pathways to each other. And so that kind of group dynamic has changed this from a field where everyone's working in their own space to a common framework where we hold the problems in common. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting perspective. What do you think it, it was about that? What, what, what factors led to, to the community, not necessarily competing, but sort of diving into this in a, in a collaborative way rather than a competitive way? Well, so obviously we're all competing to one degree or another, but I think it's friendly. I think there are a couple of factors that made that happen, one of which was um, there's really a need to define a field. We're working in pieces that couldn't be related to each other, even though they had common elements. And so we really needed to get together. You know, I'd like to say what I was doing and what a couple of other groups were doing played a big role because we started finding common elements. Yeah. B- back up and talk about uh-huh. a little more of the details on, on how you got into this. Uh-huh. So um, I was interested in this because one of the compounds that I thought was really cool found in marine animals was a peptide, and we had no idea how it would be made. It could be made in any number of ways. And um, what was interesting about about this class of peptides is that it's it's just everywhere, and it's structurally really varied. And so we thought by understanding that, we could learn how to make peptides um, rationally. Um, we find these tools, we'd understand them, and we'd apply them. And so we, uh, I spent a number of years uh, trying various methods back in the old days to figure out how they're made from whole animals. It's a hard problem because it's not known. It's, it's the unknown unknowns, as, as uh, Rumsfeld famously said. We don't know how they're made. 
We, d we don't know exactly what type of biochemistry might be involved. We don't know who makes them. Is it the animal or part of the microbiome that's making these compounds? So in the end, we took an approach that was um, kind of a simplified metagenome sequencing approach to pick this system apart. And, and that I, system was? Um, so, uh -huh. so we were working with uh, tunicates and tunicates living with cyanobacteria and various other types of bacteria. Um, and we got a grant with Jacques Ravel, who was then at Tiger, to sequence um, the genome of one of the symbiotic bacteria. It was really audacious. I'm still surprised that Jacques wanted to do it because um, now we can, you know, we can sequence probably every tunicate species in existence for less than the cost of that initial sequencing grant back at that time. <laughs> yeah. Back yeah. in the, you know, just after the human genome was done and this kind of thing, so. Sure, yeah. No, the uh, sequencing technology certainly advanced. Uh, so I got interested in this problem because in the field of marine natural products, natural products coming from animals in the ocean, more or less, um, there was a question, who makes those compounds? Are they made by animals? Are they made by the bacteria living with the animals? Um, I would say all of the evidence was very indirect at that time. And why does that matter? Uh, it matters because there are a lot of potential drugs from marine animals, and you really can't develop them if you have to go and harvest animals on a coral reef, for example. You really need to know how they're made. You need to bring the genes into the lab and you need to manipulate them in the lab. So who's making them? It a, was a big question. Um, and the whole question of the microbiome at the time was really interesting, too. How, does, how do bacteria participate in the chemistry of animals or humans and, and so on? Um, and so the project that I picked was one where there was a kind of a good, well-defined symbiosis. The, the compounds found in those animals were really interesting, and th these included a tunicate living with lots of bacteria, but especially with these cyanobacteria um, that were photosynthetic. So um, we wanted to know if the cyanobacteria were involved in making compounds and how that happened, um, and we thought if we could crack this case, then that would open up our field to other study. Um, and so it was kind of an early example uh, to try to open that microbiome field. In the end, it was really challenging um, because we didn't know who was making the compound, um, and we didn't know what types of enzymes might be involved. So it's the kind of Donald Rumsfeld unknown unknowns. Um, and so what we ended up doing was um, pursuing uh, with Jacques Ravel at Tiger um, metagenome sequencing, which was very early days for that technology, and we found the pathway that way. It turned out that this symbiosis was important, that the cyanobacteria did make this compound of interest. You know, un unbeknownst to us beforehand, it was made via this ribosomal peptide type of pathway. So that brought me into that field. Um, and when I found this, it had features of other ribosomal peptides, but really mixed up compared to what was known. Um, really unknown biochemical space um, that was pretty exciting. And so it got me thinking about how those peptides were related to what other people were working on in these diverse areas of ribosomal peptide chemistry. And I think that plus um, amazing leadership in our field by people like Wilfred Vanderdonk at 
University of Illinois and, and many others um, who are very collaborative in nature, I think led to um, kind of the definition of our field, of the ribosomal peptide field. I thought I knew what ribosomal peptide meant, but I'm not sure after <laughs> hearing you describe uh-huh. the project. Could you just give a, a short primer for someone who is familiar with biology, but not necessarily the Sure. Uh, ribosomal peptides are pretty easy to understand for biologists because everyone knows about post-translational modifications of proteins in biology. And every protein, not every protein, but most proteins probably have one or a few modifications that are put on. And with the ribosomal peptide natural products, the idea is similar. They're um, small peptides um, made on the ribosome, and then there are post-translational modifications that take place to make them very different from what you think of as a normal protein. The difference with the ribosomal peptide kind of natural product world is that those peptide products are much smaller than proteins, and they are the, the modifications provide the phenotype that is produced. So the modification turns a peptide, for example, from a disordered sequence into an antibiotic that kills bacteria through a specific mechanism. Um, or whatever that peptide might be doing. So um, you take a peptide, a short sequence, decorate it with all kinds of diverse uh, post-translational modifications, um, and it it becomes this active agent that's used in biology. Okay. Closer? (laughs) Definitely. And are they evolved from any ribosomal proteins, or are they just called ribosomal peptides because they're coming off the ribosome? Because they're coming off the ribosome, exactly. So it's an artifact of uh, chemistry nomenclature because many of the most important um, natural products that are peptides are like the penicillins of the world and vancomycins. Um, They're made via a non-ribosomal mechanism. Right. So, <laughs> so we decided to name the other ones ribosomal uh, peptide natural products, the RIPs. Uh-huh. Okay, got uh-huh. it. So it's all it, cut up now. I think if not for that weird history, they would not have that name. I think I think that was a that was a great explanation. Where do you see your lab going in the future? Uh, what what's what's uh, what's your future avenues of research? What do you see? Um, I have kind of two areas that I'm really interested in right now, and beyond that, it's hard to see because technology is moving so fast that who knows. Um, But one of those areas is I'm really interested in what natural products uh, from the ocean are doing, and specifically, they're aimed outwards at the behavior of other animals, and so they are likely to and do affect neurons, uh, many of them, and so we're interested in that. Um, And we have a project working on um, pain drug discovery from those animals. Um, A second area that I'm really interested in is how to use um, design principles to make new compounds. Um, And that's related to what my project is with the JGI, where um, it's, again, with ribosomal peptides, we're looking at some design rules so we can more predictively make compounds. And so that relates to nature very directly because nature, natural evolution tells you what some of those design rules might be and constrains hypotheses that you can test about um, how to put things together. So I think those two areas um, I'm really interested in for the foreseeable future. 
And the way we're going about it is we're uh, looking extensively at the natural biodiversity of animals and their symbionts in the ocean. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little more detail about your, your JGI project? Um, sure. So with that, that project, um, we're looking at how uh, different ribosomal peptide scaffolds can be manipulated to design products rather than uh, to just use the products made by nature. And there's kind of two basic questions about how those pathways work. Um, number one is timing. So when the peptides are made in living systems, they make the substrate, which is a short peptide, and all of these enzymes that do reactions on that peptide. Often the reactions that take place take place on the same amino acid residue, for example. So how those reactions are timed are really going to tell us how to control some aspects of chemistry with, with the enzymes. And so we're interested in that, and working with the JGI is really helpful because um, you've got experts in designing promoters and so on that, that we can consult in designing um, pieces of DNA that we can use to test these um, these issues. The second area that's really crucial and very unknown has to do with um, how proteins interact with each other. There's a lot of leading data from um, excellent groups about specific interaction motifs, but um, there's still many more questions than answers about how these um, pieces fit together. And if we can design those interactions, I think we'll be a lot better at um, rationally making compounds. All right. That sounds really cool. It is really cool. So thanks to the JGI for their support. <laughs> I look forward to working with you, Eric, on all of this stuff. And thanks so much for, for being here today. I think we'll, we'll wrap up there. Yeah, it was great talking to you. As always, I look forward to your talk to you. All right. Thanks. Thank you very much. I'm Dan Udray, and you've been listening to Natural Podcast, a podcast produced by the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, a DOE Office of Science user facility located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. You can find links to transcripts, more information on this episode, and our other episodes at naturalprodcast.com. Special thanks, as always, to my co-host, Allison Takamura. If you like Allison and you want to hear more science from her, check out her podcast, Genome Insider. She talks to lots of great scientists outside of secondary metabolism, and if you like what we're doing here, you'll probably enjoy Genome Insider too, so check it out. My intro and outro music are by Jazzar. Please help spread the word by leaving a review of Natural Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you got the podcast. If you have a question or want to give us feedback, tweet us at JGI or to me at Dan Udray. That's D-A-N-U-D-W-A-R-Y. If you want to record and send us a question that we might play on air, email us at jgi-coms, that's jgi-comms at lbl.gov. And because we're a user facility, if you're interested in partnering with us, we want to hear from you. We have projects in genome sequencing, DNA synthesis, transcriptomics, metabolomics, and natural products in plants, fungi, and microorganisms. If you want to collaborate, let us know. Find out more at jgi.doe.gov user-programs. Thanks, and see you next time.